Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, how much do you know about the history of the place you live? If that place is Seattle, points of interest include how the natives of this area lived, why the so-called pioneers chose to settle here, and why this town won out over others, including Port Townsend, as Puget Sound's central city. In this talk, Professor Linda Nash delves into the historic depths of how chance and natural resources fueled this booming metropolis of trade and expansion. Linda Nash teaches in the Department of History at the University of Washington, where she directs the Center for the Study of the Pacific Northwest. She is the author of Inescapable Ecologies, A History of Environment, Disease, and Knowledge. Her next work, Engineering Modern Lands, focuses on post-World War II water engineering projects. She spoke at UW's Kane Hall on January 27th as part of the lecture series Excavating Seattle's Histories, Peoples, Politics, and Place. Thanks to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Here, former Seattle Mayor Mike McGinn introduces Linda Nash. Um, I'm just so super honored to be here, to be invited to this the third lecture of Excavating Seattle's History, People, Politics, and Place. Tonight's lecture features Linda Nash, and it's putting people in their place, Seattle's environmental history. And by the way, I'm honored to be here, but I'm joined by another uh, former mayor, Greg Nichols, who's in the audience, who led Seattle's and you know, made the history books of environmental history for his leadership on climate change when he announced that Seattle would lead on trying to meet the goals of the Kyoto Protocol. And that kind of gets to the intro I wanted to tell a little bit about, because this issue of what's our place and what is the role that the environment play is not a historical one or an ancient one. It's an, it's an ongoing one. During uh, 2013, an election year, by the way, I was invited to the Propeller Club. And the Propeller Club is all of the maritime advocates, the port interests of the city of Seattle. And they, of course, wanted to know how I felt about certain things. And I support our working waterfront. You know, I put efforts into trying to make sure we could keep our shipbuilding and our fishing fleet active and working well in the city of Seattle. But one person stood up and asked a very pointed question. He said, Mayor, I know how you feel about the environment with all of your work in the Sierra Club and how much you care about biking and everything else. How would you feel about supporting industries that supported oil exploration in the Arctic, he said to me. (laughs) No, serious. And he knew something, by the way. I learned later he worked for Foss Maritime. And I struggled with the question because he was right. I did really care deeply about the environment, and I also cared about, as I mentioned, I cared about our maritime industry is important. And and I'm not naive. I know that many industries in our port are shipping supplies up there. We're supplying the materials, the workmen, the engines to maintain the oil pipeline. I mean, that's part of our history as well. And I, I struggled and ultimately said, you know, I'm not sure what I would do. Now, as you all know, about a year later, what arrived in, the, in Elliott Bay but the polar pioneer, Shell's Arctic oil drilling rig. And I actually think they were just kind of testing where I was on the question because they knew it would be controversial. And I ended up out there in a kayak uh, along with some others. And, and you know, I, 
I guess I knew where I ended up on the question at the end of the day, but I was now just a citizen and an activist, not a mayor, so it was a little easier to take that stance at that point. There was another interesting point. Think of the name, the pioneer, right? What's the pioneer? It's, it, it's very colonial, very Eurocentric, you know, the Westerner who comes out into the West and settles virgin lands. But this is, these, these are not virgin lands, folks. There were people living here. Nor is the North Slope or the Arctic Ocean virgin lands either. There are Native American tribes living there. So that's all just a way to say that there's really complex threads that I am not qualified to pull apart for you. But we have the speaker who can. And Linda is, I I hope I haven't set the bar too high now, Linda. I'm, I'm counting on you now. Linda Nash is an associate professor in the Department of History. She serves as the director of the Center for the Study of the Pacific Northwest. She's the John Calhoun Smith Memorial Endowed Professor. And in addition to being a historian whose emphasis is on environmental and cultural history, she also has a BS in civil engineering and an MS in energy and resources. So without further ado, Linda Nash. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor McGinn, for that very kind and very appropriate introduction. I think you'll see it will resonate with my talk tonight. And thank all of you. Let me just say how wonderful it is to see a packed house for this series of history lectures. I mean, this is a time when, if you listen to the radio, you hear a lot of commentary questioning the value of the humanities, the values of disciplines like history in our modern high-tech age. But apparently, all 600 of you didn't get that memo. So it's great to see you here tonight. Okay, I want to start tonight, let me get my technology. I want to start tonight with a quiz. So that's your cue to groan, but you don't have to. Uh, In 1981, this publication, the Co-Evolution Quarterly, published a special issue on bioregions. Now this publication was actually an offshoot of the much more well-known Whole Earth Catalog, which I imagine at least a few of you subscribe to at one point in your life, maybe even have a couple old dog-eared copies in your basement. So this was an offshoot of Stuart Brand's Whole Earth Catalog. In 1981, they dedicated this issue to bioregions, and on the first page was a quiz entitled, Where You At? It was 20 questions long, and it was sort of a bioregionalist IQ test. The first question asked you to trace the water you drink from precipitation to tap. Things quickly got harder, as you can see. These are just some sample questions. Question seven asked for the names of five edible plants in your region and their seasons of availability. Others asked about the direction of winter storms, the name of the regional soil series on which you were standing, and the time of year in which the local deer rut. Now, if you harbored any question about the attitude of the authors, that was quickly clarified by the rather harsh scoring system. (laughs) Scoring is on the honor system. But in today's Seattle, there are clearly other things that are far more important to one's survival, like how to ride a bus, how to navigate the bike lanes, where to find the best price on organic kale. 
The fact of the matter is that the knowledge of the deer rutting season is of far less practical use today than knowing where to find a good latte. And yet the where you at quiz, I think, points to a larger issue, the way in which modern urban dwellers are so disconnected from their local environments. That is the issue that I want to take up tonight. Our histories of cities would seem to be a case in point. My colleagues thus far have offered you outstanding lectures, except they have told the story of Seattle as the story of a disembedded and isolated species, Homo sapiens. Don't get me wrong, they're not to blame. They're products of their training and our shared discipline. In history, we trace the movement of human bodies, human ideas, human institutions, human inventions. The places, the regions, and environments, the other species with which human history takes shape have typically been seen as palimpsests, as frozen scenes for human activity, or perhaps as foils for human conquest and human ingenuity. Tonight, I want to propose a different way of looking at Seattle's history, as a history in which other species and non-human environments have played a vital role. To do that in the time that I have tonight, I'm going to offer you a series of four vignettes. And with each vignette, I'm going to take a key phase in Seattle's history, phases that you've heard about in the previous lecture. And I'm going to connect those phases of Seattle's history to environments of the region and also of the world. When the Cordilleran ice sheet pulled back from the area we know today as Seattle, some 16,000 years ago, it left behind deep troughs filled with water punctuated by a series of parallel valleys and ridges. The key feature of this region was the deep body of water, connected to yet distinct from the Pacific Ocean, filled with islands and peninsulas. In the native language of the region, this water is called Hwulch, which simply, simply means salt water. People arrived in this area at least 10,000 years ago, and over millennia, those who remained here developed intricate systems for prospering from the region's flows of energy. Salmon were the key. These fish captured the energy available from a vast swath of plants and animals in hundreds of square miles of ocean, and they returned it regularly and predictably to all the streams and rivers of Puget Sound. By the time Europeans first arrived in the region in the late 1700s, the natives here, the Coast Salish, organized much of their life around the harvest of resources from the water. And they had developed sophisticated techniques for gathering large quantities of salmon. Reef netters could capture as many as 4,000 fish in a day. Early European observers consistently remarked on both the abundance of the fish and the size of native harvests. Native groups recognized the power of salmon. Really, how could they not? The species' importance was reflected throughout the spiritual, political, and cultural life of this region. Native people, moreover, limited their impacts on this key resource by drawing social, spatial, and temporal boundaries. Power within Native societies could be read from the control of key fishing sites. The best sites were held and managed by family groups, and typically passed down through inheritance. Fishing at such sites was restricted to certain people and to certain times of the season. Coast Salish people would not eat female salmon or their eggs during the first half of the run, thus guaranteeing that a substantial percentage of the fish would survive to spawn. Fishing gear was typically constructed so as to allow for some escapement, 
as when people removed portions of a weir at certain times of the day so that fish could proceed easily upstream. Now, although salmon were the principal resource for native peoples, they were hardly the only resource. Natives used other flows, energy flows in the environment as well. They capitalized on the energy stored in animal flesh, in marine species, and in wild and domesticated plants. In order to efficiently capture these flows, native people moved seasonally, typically along watersheds. Their main settlements, usually downriver, were occupied in winter, with smaller seasonal summer camps scattered further upstream and in surrounding prairies and forests. Winter settlements functioned as fulcrums of trade and culture, small towns, if you will. They drew together people and resources from various places and then redistributed them. The Seattle area was occupied by three principal groups, the Duwamish, whose major settlement lay near the mouth of the Duwamish River, the Lake people, whose winter homes were along the shores of Lake Washington, and the Shilshoals, who inhabited the area of Salmon Bay, pictured here. Trade and kinship ties connected these groups to one another and to a much wider Pacific Northwest population, extending north to Vancouver Island, east to the Columbia Plateau, and south to the Columbia River. Into this complicated world wandered Arthur Denny and his companions in 1851. We often call them pioneers, but a more descriptive term might be government-backed speculators. The United States had unilaterally laid claim to the lands of the Duwamish and other native peoples in the region, sealing that with a treaty agreed to with the British in 1846. Settlers like Denny served the purposes of the government by first solidifying American claims to the territory, and secondly, by providing a forward fighting force if that should be needed. With the passage of the Oregon Land Donation Act in 1850, the American government promised to uphold the land claims of early settlers, and it, they ignited a small-scale rush to Puget Sound. Having served as a surveyor back in Illinois for the better part of a decade, Arthur Denny was well aware of the money that could be made in land. Though he hadn't managed to do much in Illinois, he, like many others, saw the Oregon Territory as his opportunity to get in early. As one local observer noted of the American settlers, they all seem to share the common idea in this country that they can get rich in a few years. Now, the Americans who landed at Alki Point had no intention of farming or making a life directly from the energies of the local environment, at least not if they could help it. Their raison d'etre was to recreate the customs and lifeways that they had known back in the Midwest. The Denny's brought with them a year's worth of supplies, and they immediately looked to the Pacific maritime trade to supply the rest. They were the forward edge of an American empire on the Pacific coast. The little power that Denny and his companions had in 1851 emanated from their connection to this expanding empire and its markets. Within a month of their arrival, the leader of the group, Lee Terry, opened a store in his log cabin so he could trade with the other pioneers and the local Indians. Denny would quickly stake a large claim on Elliott Bay with the hope of later subdividing it and selling high. As he would, he'd also stake a claim in Snoqualmie Pass in the hope of striking minerals. That's where we get Denny Creek from, if you've been there. And he too, Denny would also open a store. Now, I know it's difficult for many Seattleites to accept, but it's fair to say that they owe their city's existence to California. <laughs> what 
Mayor McGinn didn't know, and at least didn't tell you, is that I'm from California, so I can tell you the truth. Although native groups had traded along the Pacific coast of North America for centuries, trade expanded in the 18th century as the demand for whales and maritime furs drew in Russian, American, and British vessels. By the early 1800s, both whales and otters had been nearly wiped out, and the Pacific trade was in decline. Yet the discovery of gold in California in 1848 reignited interest in the region. The rush to California created an instant city, San Francisco, and it stimulated trade up and down the Pacific coast. The surge of humanity in San Francisco pulled a diverse set of landscapes into that city's orbit and a seemingly nonstop stream of supplies. Bricks from New Zealand and Tasmania, coal and tools from the East Coast, granite from Hong Kong, flour and potatoes from Oregon, crockery, spices, and luxury items from China. For wood, a crucial resource, San Franciscans looked to Maine, Norway, Chile, and Australia, but mostly they looked north, to the redwoods on California's coast, to the Columbia River, and to the much more accessible Douglas firs of Puget Sound. This photo is a classic photo in California history. It's actually called Forest of Masts, and I just want to point out that all those sticks in the back are actually the masts of ships. And this gives you a sense of how intense the trade was in San Francisco in 1850. Dozens of ships pouring into San, San Francisco every day with a, a, just boatloads of supplies. The uh, sources describe supplies just being stacked high on the streets. They were, they were coming in so fast, people couldn't put them away. They had no place to store them. It was this world of commodities and international markets to which Arthur Denny was attached and which he hoped to expand. Coming most recently from Portland, which was then booming as it sent flour and timber south to San Francisco, Denny envisioned something similar in the Puget Sound region. The immediate basis for his participation in that market were the immense trees that grew all around salt water, and which San Francisco capitalists were already tapping into. Douglas firs, with their strength, their resiliency, and their long straight trunks, made nearly ideal timbers. Within a month of arriving, these pioneer speculators had sold a load of rough chopped logs to a ship's captain bound for San Francisco. At the time, wood piles purchased on the Sound for eight cents a foot sold in California for a dollar. Profits were more than a thousand percent. Denny and his like were transforming trees into commodities and the forested landscapes of Puget Sound and salt water into a hinterland of San Francisco. Now, as more than one historian and countless engineers have observed, this was actually a bad place to build a city. The original settlement that Denny and David Boren laid out was surrounded by steep, erosion-prone hills, cut off from the mainland at the highest tides, and bordered on the south by extensive tide flats. All in all, the area had relatively little flat, stable land. Moreover, lakes, hills, and steep mountains to the east limited the prospects for an extensive hinterland on whose resources the new settlement could easily draw. The only way to get things in and out of Seattle was via the Sound. So Denny was careful to look for a deep harbor where large ships could anchor. The steep, heavily wooded hillsides had the benefit of making it relatively easy for poorly capitalized settlers to get their logs into the water. Denny and Boren then welcomed the arrival of Henry Yesler, who promised to build a sawmill on the site. So this is a, a map drawn in 1855, 
which actually shows you in plan what the settlement looked like. So here's the original settlement right here on this little peninsula of Lyon. This is the tide flats uh, that separate most of that peninsula from the rest of the city. So this is what we would now call, you know, that Soto area, right? It's nice and flat. It used to be tidelands. So you can see that it's not really an ideal place to build a large city. Again, and you can get a sense of that in the, in the photo there. But then I love this. Here's a, a, a drawing from the same year, 1866. Obviously an early sort of booster, trying to make a bad situation look as good as he possibly could. We don't, unfortunately, we don't know the author of that drawing. Okay. These people and those that joined them looked elsewhere to meet their own needs. While using the energy and the material stored in Pacific Northwest forests to supply the voracious appetite of San Francisco, the new Seattleites imported flour from Oregon and Chile, sugar from China, pork and butter from the East Coast. But imports in the 1850s were erratic. They were dependent on the weather, and prices were high. Denny once complained of paying over $20 for a barrel of flour. Thus, the settlers turned to the land and the people around them. Most aspects of their early material life mimicked those of the natives. They built rough wooden houses, slept on mattresses of cedar boughs and moss, and they worked by the light of dogfish oil lamps. Yet with little concept of how to live in this landscape, the newcomers repeatedly turned to those that did. As one settler wrote, quote, the Indians do most of the fishing. They traded with Indians for salmon, but also for potatoes, meat, clams, baskets, and canoes. They learned from natives which berries to eat, which to avoid, and where to find them. They followed native trails. They learned the, from them the better fishing spots and the edible plants, and they relied on natives to canoe them up rivers. Native networks in this region were not supplanted by this network of trade. They were necessary to it and supplemented by it. Indians helped settlers harvest and load logs. They sold fish and food in return for metal pots, knives, and other worthwhile supplies. In the settler period, the energies of Northwestern nature were harvested really by two systems. One was settler capitalist and the other was native. And the survival of early Seattle really depended on both. But settlement, as every settler understood, was ultimately about conquest. Settlers saw their reliance on natives, their trade with natives, and indeed the very presence of natives as a temporary condition. In 1855, the newcomers welcomed a hastily conducted set of treaty negotiations in which natives in the region supposedly ceded a vast area, really the entire region, to the US government. Ten years later, in 1865, when Seattle officially incorporated as a town, the town's leaders passed an ordinance forbidding any Indian from residing within the new city's limits. Settlers continued to expand their search for marketable resources further afield, claiming an ever greater portion of the landscape as assets to be mobilized and exchanged for other things. For natives, on the other hand, basic necessities, including food, building materials, and medicine, those were becoming scarce. Settlers interpreted this native impoverishment as a mark of the latter's inferiority and unworthiness. To put it simply, resource appropriation was itself the primary mode of conquest. Now, although much ink has been spilled about Henry Yesler's sawmill, the fact is that Seattle was never more than a bit player in the early Puget Sound timber trade. 
The export of boards and logs was dominated by the heavily capitalized mills scattered about the Sound in places like Port Blakely, Port Gamble, and Port Ludlow. And that's what you see here. This image uh, on your right is actually the, all of the black dots are major timber centers before, uh, eight, before 1900. So there's mills scattered all around. Yesler's mill served mostly local needs for the town, and his attempts at expansion were undermined by his lack of capital and poor business practices. Although he obtained some backing from San Francisco investors, they soon pulled out, with one observing that Yesler has disappointed us in nearly everything. Yet the existence of more successful mills redounded to the benefit of Seattle. With a single-minded focus on resource extraction, the major timber capitalists had no interest in town building or community development. They imported their workers, paid them as little as possible, built company housing and a company store. Small-time merchants in Seattle seized the opportunity to act as suppliers. Soon, a fleet of ships plied the sound, delivering goods to mills and small settlements and ferrying passengers to Seattle, sinking, seeking goods and entertainment of various kinds. In other words, the export of resources out of Seattle was only half the story. Crucial to the sound, town's success was the fact that it became a nexus for imports of food, but also clothes, tools, mining and milling equipment, and even luxury goods. And here you can actually see that uh, in this slide. You see all, the reason I like this for my purposes is you see all of the ships of various types and sizes coming into Seattle. And that's, I think, a fairly accurate representation. Seattle is a network, not so much for a, a, a trade with San Francisco is very important, but this regional trade on the Sound is becoming increasingly important to Seattle's survival. Now, Seattle's position in the Pacific maritime trade improved with the discovery of a new resource, high-grade coal, which occurred throughout the hills of eastern Puget Sound. In the 19th century, coal was king. It was the fuel of an industrializing America, feeding steam-powered machinery in mills and factories, powering railroads and steamships, as well as providing heat in thousands of homes and businesses. As fate would have it, there was little coal in California and the ever-growing San Francisco was desperate for energy. Here lay the origins of several Pacific Northwest communities, places like Newcastle, Renton, Black Diamond, and Carbonado, most of which were soon controlled by San Francisco investors. Nonetheless, much of that coal passed through Seattle before heading south. By 1880, the town shipped nearly 140,000 tons each year, and that enabled the small community to stay afloat. Whereas native people wielded the power of salmon, settlers attached themselves to the power of Douglas fir and coal. They looked to trees and rocks, not for their immediate utility, so much as for the fact that they could be traded for something else. They never really tried to learn the intricacies of this landscape. Flour, meat, tools, medicines, even cultural symbols might be pro procured from somewhere else. Thus, early Seattleites took the capitalist market and its imperative of growth for granted. Resource exploitation, even over-exploitation, was not necessarily a problem because these people, unlike the people they were seeking to displace, were not dependent solely or primarily upon the landscape of salt water for their survival. 
As they saw it, their personal success and happiness hinged on the flow of goods through the town, which depended on the continued exploitation of various Northwest hinterlands. Connections were crucial. To expand their markets, Seattle boosters looked to the railroads. With the arrival of the North Pacific in 1884, and especially with the Great Northern a decade later, Seattle had access to Midwestern markets and far better access to the East Coast. Pacific Northwest lumber now shipped out to the Plains and to Chicago, offering a substitute for the depleted white pine forests of the Great Lakes region. More significantly, however, the existence of railroad connections encouraged both the immigration of new people and greater investments by Eastern capitalists. As lumber barons in the Great Lakes knew all too well, those forests were all but used up. Both their businesses and their own power depended upon finding more trees. It was this fact that brought to the Pacific Northwest men like Chauncey Griggs, who opened the St. Paul Tacoma lumber mill with 1.5 million in capital after purchasing 80,000 acres from the Northern Pacific Railway. Or Frederick Weyerhaeuser, who famously made a deal with his neighbor in St. Paul, Minnesota, the railroad baron James J. Hill, to buy nearly 1 million acres of forest land in Washington state. These operations, with the money to hire thousands of workers and to invest in modern machinery, would open up the interior forests to large-scale logging and would radically increase the speed with which the forests of saltwater were consumed. In the spring of 1898, Mr. O.S. Johnson walked into the Stetson Brothers store in downtown Seattle, and he spent a tidy sum of money. $517.16. What did he buy, you ask? Well, we know. He purchased bacon, flour, rice, evaporated potatoes, a ripsaw, a claw hammer, shovel, camp stove, needles and yarn, rubber boots, suspenders, blankets, a rifle, and last but not least, a gold pan. Johnson was headed to the Klondike gold fields. In 1896, a small group of prospectors in a remote part of Alaska had happened upon a stunningly rich po pocket of gold at the confluence of the Klondike and the Yukon Rivers. Their discovery set off one of the last great mineral rushes in the American West. And as the purchases of Johnson and hundreds of others like him suggest, the gold rush was a boon for Seattle. It signaled, in the words of John Finlay, Seattle's first pandemonium moment. <coughs> On a single day in 1898, 1,800 new people arrived in town. Eastern Railroad connections had encouraged the growth of Seattle's wholesaling and retailing businesses, and merchants poised themselves to take advantage of this new mass migration. Through the concerted efforts of local business people, Seattle emerged as an entrepot for the gold rush. The city morphed into a kind of giant warehouse, gathering mass quantities of food and manufactured goods from the region but also from the entire country, and then exchanging those things to miners on their way to Alaska. So this is a photo taken from the Alaska building, which is now a Courtyard Marriott, second in Cherry, looking out to the waterfront. And I put it in here just to show you the explosion of warehouses. Of course, this is after the Great Seattle Fire. A lot of things have been rebuilt. But the fact is that Seattle had made itself really into a wholesaling center, a retail wholesale center, hence all those warehouses in the Pioneer Square area. That's why they were built. 
And here's just a, you know, a more specific example of that. Schwabachers was a, actually originated as a San Francisco company, Jewish brothers that immigrated and um, moved to San Francisco. And uh, um, then, I guess, Bailey Gatzer, Seattle's famous Seattleite, Seattle's uh, leader in Seattle's early Jewish community, the first and only, I think, Jewish mayor of Seattle. Um, he uh, married into the Schwabacher family and, and started, moved to Seattle in the 1860s and started a branch up here. And during the gold rush, his business boomed. Schwabachers became so successful that they actually split their business into several parts. They built several new buildings in the gold rush period. And this is one of those buildings. So this is down, as I say, at first in Yesler, and you can still see it today. So the next time you're walking in Pioneer Square, you can impress your friends with your knowledge of buildings, if you didn't already know that. OK. What was significant here were two things. First, the origins of the goods that miners bought were becoming ever more obscure. While salmon were caught and canned locally and woolen clothes were woven and sewn in the region, Seattle was also importing thousands of pounds of goods from the East Coast to resell to people like Johnson. As systems of mass production were taking shape in the East, the railroads made it possible to transport innumerable factory-produced goods to Seattle on a regular basis. Local merchants now routinely traveled to Chicago and New York to place their orders. Yet for the gold seeker heading north, his food and clothing and tools came not from distant farms and factories, not from nature or human labor, but simply from Seattle. Secondly, with the Klondike Gold Rush, Seattle businessmen and boosters had succeeded in making their town, rather than San Francisco or Portland, the major node in the American migration to Alaska. Before the gold rush, Seattle sat at the periphery of an American empire, a small town only loosely connected to larger networks of capital and power. 1898 marked not only the height of the Alaska gold rush, but also the American annexation of the Philippines in the wake of the Spanish-American War. With these events, Seattle emerged as a location from which a Pacific-facing empire could resupply itself and spread. Alaska effectively became a resource hinterland, sending its fish and minerals south to Seattle and receiving people, processed food, livestock, machinery, tools, and clothing in return. And here's an interesting way of visualizing it. This is from a, a dissertation that I found here at the UW, a dissertation done in 1953 for a PhD in commercial science. And the person drew these handmade maps, uh, you know, for computers, showing ho Seattle's wholesale region and how that shifted over the time. He actually went through records of Seattle's companies to do this. And so here, the purple here is the region that Seattle's actively selling, that Seattle merchants are actively selling to. And the pink over here is the region that, guess what town Seattle's competing with in this period? Port Townsend. Port Townsend actually in many ways was better suited uh, geographically to capture that Pacific trade than Seattle was, Seattle being way down here, right? So you know, Puget Sound initially captured a lot of the Pacific trade, was the original point of port of entry, but Seattle is now successfully competing with Port, Sound, port Townsend in 1868. But as you can see, the trade is still entirely focused on the sound and the sea. It's the maritime trade. 
By 1900, things have changed dramatically. Port Townsend is out of the picture. Seattle is now wholesaling in this entire region. And in addition, it's wholesaling up in Alaska to the north, which isn't shown here. But the railroads have allowed Seattle to also sell to the east. So it's now trading actively with the eastern agricultural counties. So dramatic change in sort of the economic networks that Seattle's operating within in those years. Now, we can read this as an instance of capital expansion, which it was. But the term, I think, is too abstract, and it only obscures what is actually happening. Capital expansion was underwritten both by the wealth of nature and by the labor of people. This Alaska trade was spurred by a mineral in the Alaskan interiors, gold, underwritten by a mineral in the Cascade Mountains, coal, which powered the st steamships that took men and supplies north and then brought men and gold back. And it was sustained by the massive harvesting of fish all along the Pacific coast. Moreover, it was not simply merchants and railroads that were essential to this expansion, but farmers who grew grains in eastern Washington and raised cattle on the plains, people who canned corn on Long Island, packed salmon in Alaska, and manufactured steel in Pittsburgh, miners who dug coal in the hills and mountains of Washington and Colorado, loggers who cut timber throughout the Pacific Northwest. The combination of industrial mass production on the one hand and American geographic expansion on the other made the linkages between nature and consumption increasingly complex. The linkages, however, were always there. Now, to celebrate their new role in an expanding network of exchange, Seattle's business class threw themselves a party. With the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition opened on June 1, 1909, the editors of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer gushed with local pride. They wrote, against the sullen, low-hanging clouds, a great blaze of light in the north proclaimed the, to the city last night that the exposition was open. Seen from afar over the treetops, the great fair appeared a fairy city wrought by some magician's wand. Now we can put aside the magicians and the purple prose, but the PI was describing something quite important here, and that was the fact that electric lighting had come to Seattle. Shortly after the turn of the century, electrification rapidly penetrated and fundamentally altered urban life. Electricity lit up dark city streets. It encouraged people to stay up later. Electric motors replaced bulky and inefficient steam engines in manufacturing. Electric trolleys replaced horse-drawn streetcars. And that enabled uh, that suburban expansion that uh, Quintar Taylor talked about last week. Electric irons, ranges, and clothes washers became standard features of the middle class home, and that lightened the labor of many women. Electricity also hastened the growth of modern consumer culture. Electric lights extended shopping hours and opened up new advertising possibilities. Merchants erected illuminated signs, they built escalators, and they used electric lighting to entice people into their stores and highlight the appeal of their merchandise. For many people, electricity promised a revolution in human life. One of the 20th century America's most influential critics, the writer Lewis Mumford, believed that the advent of electricity marked the beginning of an entirely new phase of Western civilization. According to Mumford, the neotechnic era would be marked by organic cities, the decentralization of industry, the independence of labor, new possibilities of communication, 
and the restoration of ecological balance. Central to this transition was a new form of power, hydropower. What Mumford called white coal promised all the benefits of electricity without the costs of coal. It did not require the dangerous work of mining. It did not create horrific air pollution that darkened the skies of industrial cities. Its supply was unlimited and inexhaustible. As Seattle's leaders came to recognize the crucial role of energy and urban growth, they began to think seriously about hydropower. Cities, however, do not typically have raging streams with large vertical drops running through the center of them. Thus, the growing interest in hydropower sent urban emissaries to, into the hinterlands. In Seattle's case, white coal came first from a power plant constructed with investment capital 30 miles to the east at Snoqualmie Falls. And this is actually a brochure for that plant. And I, my guess is that the purpose of this interesting brochure with the Capitol building in it and the Empire State Building, et cetera, it, this was a private venture. And the guy who was behind it, Charles Baker was his name, was desperate to raise financing for this and other electrical ventures that he was trying to get underway. So he's looking to Eastern capitalists and trying to impress them with the resources in the Pacific Northwest in order to generate more support for his projects. But in 1905, the city of Seattle actually built its first um, municipally owned small hydro plant, and that was on the Cedar River as part of a larger project to develop the water supply there. But these first projects, both Snoqualmie Falls and the Cedar River, they were very small scale. It was with the appointment of this man, James Delmage Ross, who went by the initials JD, um, that Seattle developed much more ambitious uh, plans for hydropower. He was appointed the superintendent of the city, new city lighting department, and he believed in the radical expansion of electrical services, specifically publicly owned and generated electricity. The city itself would own the, um, the, the power plants and deliver the electricity. And this battle between publicly and privately owned electricity became a crusade in Seattle. And the issue of private versus public power would launch a heated political debate in the first decades of the 20th century. However, everyone agreed that electricity was essential to attracting more industry to the region and thus to Seattle's future. Seattle's use of electricity surged during World War I, and immediately following the war, Ross turned to augmenting the city's electrical supply with an ambitious plan to build three dams on the Skagit River. The upper Skagit was a beautiful but remote landscape. The river had carved a deep, narrow canyon through the high northern Cascades before it descended into a gentle glacial valley. As the rangers in North Cascades National Park are eager to tell you, if you go to those ranger talks, it is one of the most biologically diverse landscapes in the northern hemisphere. Native people knew the Skagit as a particularly rich river that housed all five species of salmon, as well as trout, sturgeon, and several other native fish. With the arrival of City Light Cruise in 1919, this landscape was pulled into the orbit of the growing city 100 miles to the south. For engineers, the river and the canyon offered a near-perfect setting for a dam, actually for a series of dams. The steep drop promised lots of power, the glacier-fed river a reliable flow. Engineers saw the river not in terms of salmon, but as cubic feet per second and kilowatt hours. J.D. Ross referred to it simply as the river of a million horsepower. Engineers captured the kinetic energy of the river by impounding it behind one dam and then two more. 
and then releasing the water at a controlled weight rate to flow across steel turbines, setting them in motion. The spinning turbines generated an electrical current, which was sent along wires strung from the power plant on the river south to Seattle. Now, it was J.D. Ross and his engineers who decided where those power lines would be placed. And they made no stopovers in towns or at farms along the way. They went straight to Seattle. Yet there were impacts on the river. A beautiful canyon lay submerged beneath a lake, as did key fishing sites belonging to the Upper Skagit tribe. And although Seattle's engineers claimed that no salmon ever migrated above the dam site, in retrospect, that claim seems dubious. In any case, however, as engineers stored and then released water to meet Seattle's electrical needs, it played havoc with the river downstream. As one writer editorialized, the, quote, domineering city light was responsible for the ruination of 500 miles of unsurpassed fishing streams. When power demand was light or repairs were needed, engineers held water behind the dam, sometimes leaving thousands of fish stranded in a dry stream bed. At other times, rapidly rising water drowned local cows caught grazing too close to the river. But other more distant landscapes were affected by the push for electrification. Though the paths of connection are much more difficult to trace, they were no less consequential. The wires through which electricity flowed were made of copper, an element perfectly suited to the task because of a single weakly attached electron, which makes copper an excellent electrical conductor. Moreover, copper has a high strength under tension, which makes it ideal for stringing wire over long distances. As electricity became a standard feature of modern urban life, the demand for copper skyrocketed. However, substantial concentrations of copper are not widespread in the Earth's crust. Thus, the search for copper began to rival that for gold and silver, and the methods for obtaining it became increasingly destructive. Large capitalists, such as the Rockefellers and the Guggenheims, sought out more distant deposits. They found a particularly rich mine along the Copper River in Alaska. Now, have you ever wondered why it's called Copper River Salmon? Again, native people, in this case the Atnas, were quickly pushed aside as workers were brought in and the massive Kennecott mine complex was built. Hundreds of workers labored and lived in this remote landscape, digging ore from the mountain, which was then shipped by rail and boat to the Guggenheim-owned smelter on Puget Sound. In just four months, in 1915, the Kennecott mine shipped 31 million pounds of copper to Ruston, a company town adjacent to Tacoma, for profits of over $4 million. The Guggenheims were wielding the power of Alaskan copper, and in less than three decades, they would wring $100 million in profits out of those mines. By 1927, the smelter in Ruston produced 12% of the nation's copper. Its smokestack, the tallest in the world, belched out sulfur dioxide, which combined with water in the foggy northwest atmosphere to create an acid rain. Residents complained of pets dying, yards where nothing would grow, and children who developed asthma. But Ruston was a company town. Working people depended on the smelter for their wages. When the acid rain was particularly bad, the smelter man went door to door, paying people on the spot for damaged plants and property. Over the course of the 20th century, industrial-scale copper mining in places like Ruston and Butte, Montana, left a legacy of sickened people and landscapes. Today, many of these sites are modern Superfund sites. Electricity, however, was here to stay. With the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the arrival of the New Deal, 
The federal government threw its weight behind the development of hydroelectricity, making unprecedented investments in massive dams along the Columbia River. FDR hired Seattle's own J.D. Ross to head a new agency, the Bonneville Power Administration, which would oversee the distribution of the Columbia's electricity. The largest dam in the world, Grand Coulee, would anchor an ambitious irrigation scheme on the Columbia Plateau while also producing astounding amounts of power. FDR authorized a second large dam downstream at Bonneville. Together, these dams promised to triple the electricity supply of the region. Echoing Lewis Mumford's vision of the neotechnic era, New Dealers saw electricity as revolutionary, capable of producing higher standards of living, reducing inequality, and enabling a cultural fluorescence among the working classes. In keeping with the New Deal's democratic political goals, the power lines from Grand Coulee ran in many directions. By 1945, the Bonneville Power Administration controlled 4,400 miles of power lines amidst a grid that wove together Seattle, Spokane, Portland, and most all of the small towns and communities in between. It also offered the cheapest electricity rates in the country. Again, it was Native Americans who paid the highest and most immediate price. The Grand Coulee Project created a gigantic reservoir in the midst of the Colville and Spokane Indian reservations. One of the Northwest premier inland fishing sites was flooded, the famed Kettle Falls site where Indians had dip-netted salmon for centuries. In addition, the reservations lost their best remaining lands, those along the river where most people lived, as well as their access to hunting and gathering grounds on the river's south side. Towns were flooded, thousands of burial sites were inundated, and places of spiritual and cultural significance were lost. As Colville member Jim Dusatel recalled decades later, quote, the river was the central and most powerful element in the life of my people. Suddenly, all of this was wiped out. The river was blocked. The land was flooded. Our home sites were gone. The fordings were made impossible. The root digging prairies were cut off. The salmon came no more. And with the disappearance of the salmon, our traditional economy was lost forever." End quote. To add insult to injury, electricity service on the reservations has been and remains far more costly than in the rest of the region served by the federal projects. Years later, the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation sued and eventually won some com compensation for their losses. Efforts of the Spokane Tribe to do the same have yet to succeed. Aluminum, by all accounts, was a thoroughly modern material. Lewis Mumford, to return to him again, called it the most distinctly neotechnic metal, citing its combination of lightness and strength. Although first produced in 1825, it was during World War I that its value in military applications was recognized. Aluminum played a still more crucial role in World War II. In 1940, FDR called for the production of 50,000 airplanes, which required what was at the time an absolutely staggering amount of aluminum. In 1943, he called for the production of 125,000 planes. And between 1930 and 1943, U.S. aluminum production rose 600%. Almost overnight, aluminum captured the Columbia River, and it would not release its hold for more than half a century. Aluminum production is notorious for its energy demands. With the Bonneville Power Administration flush with excess hydropower, the U.S. focused on the production of aluminum as a strategic metal, and defense manufacturing plants located nearby in Seattle and Portland, it seemed a perfect match. 
the U.S. government quickly located six aluminum smelter plants across the region in smaller towns, places like Longview and Mead. Part of the rationale was that was the Boeing Company, which by 1944 was employing 50,000 workers to build aluminum-bodied airplanes at its Seattle plant. With the onset of the Cold War, the federal government continued to support the synergistic growth of aluminum smelting and the Boeing Company, which even today remains Seattle's major employer. By the 1950s, there were 10 aluminum plants in the region, providing 40% of the nation's supply and consuming half of the BPA's electricity. Materials, as any engineer will tell you, are essential to design. Part of aluminum's appeal lay in its high electron valence, for those of you who remember your high school chemistry. Consequently, it has the ability to alloy with numerous other metals, zinc, copper, silicon, lithium, magnesium. There are literally hundreds of different alloys of aluminum, each with different properties. In different forms, aluminum can be formed, drawn, stamped, spun, welded, brazed, or soldered. Each alloy offered Boeing's engineers and machinists different possibilities. The results were often novel, efficient, and sometimes wildly creative. Beyond its military and aerospace applications, aluminum became a symbol of a new kind of modernity in the post-war period, a lighter, faster, consumer-driven modernity. Not the, simply the stuff of airplanes and spacecraft, Alumin, aluminum was also the material of streamlined automobiles, airstream trailers, kitchen foil, and modernist architecture. It encapsulated modern hopes for a faster, cleaner, and brighter future. And this was nowhere more evident than at Seattle's 1962 World's Fair, which proudly showcased both the region's hydroelectricity capacity and its aluminum production. Paul Theory, the architect for the fair, designed the striking Washington Coliseum, a 130,000 square foot structure with an open plan. Topped by a lightweight aluminum panel roof, the Coliseum required no interior roof supports. Inside, Visitors delighted in riding the famous bubbleator up through an artistic constellation of 3,500 aluminum cubes. This was the world of tomorrow. Now, perhaps like me, many of you have seen the bubbleator, but you saw it in the armory or the food circus, as it used to be known. But the bubbleator was moved. It was originally in the Coliseum as part of the World of Tomorrow exhibit and then moved to the food circus. And now I think it's like half of it's a greenhouse in someone's garden somewhere. Wasn't, it wasn't preserved. Too bad. But as with all technologies, there is a darker side. The story of salmon versus dams on the Columbia is well known in this region. While dams are not necessarily inimical to fish, it is at best a difficult coexistence. By the late 1960s, there were 11 dams on the Columbia's main stem, and this complex system was managed primarily for power and aluminum production, not for fish. A river that once held more than 15 million salmon in a year, more than any other river in the world, now holds 2 million. And that has come only after billions of dollars have been spent on restoration and management. During the 1990s, the runs reached their nadir, and 12 separate populations of Columbia River salmon were listed for protection under the Endangered Species Act. Less well-known, however, is the story of bauxite, the key input for aluminum production. 
As demand for this metal soared, so did the demand for bauxite. At one point, all of the U.S.'s bauxite had come from Arkansas and Georgia. But as wartime needs increased, it became clear to military planners that America would have to seek bauxite, bauxite supplies abroad. Through a convoluted reasoning, funding intended for the post-war European recovery, the Marshall Plan money, provided money to American corporations to develop bauxite mines in Jamaica. The first bauxite was shipped in 1952. Five years later, Jamaica led the world in bauxite production. Dense forests, pasture land, and the mixed cropping systems of peasant farmers gave way to pit mines and an intensely alkaline liquid known in the industry as red mud. One ton of aluminum produced in the Northwest produced 10 tons of red mud in Jamaica or Suriname. Local residents suffered the, the effects of caustic air and polluted groundwater. Asthma and respiratory problems are common in mining areas. As in Ruston, industry representatives reportedly wrote checks to the most persistent complainers. This small island nation has remained dependent on this extractive industry ever since, subject to, the both, the, subject to both the fluctuating prices of aluminum in the global market and the serious environmental impacts of bauxite production. Now these intertwined stories of the Columbia River, the aluminum industry, and the Boeing Corporation in the post-war period are indicative of modern Seattle's privileged position within a set of complicated global networks, networks that were and are environmental as much as economic. Those networks fostered a variety of landscapes. In Seattle, they fostered a landscape of innovation at Boeing's airplane factory and in the architecture of Paul Theory, as well as a landscape of convenience in the homes of those eating TV dinners and drinking cans of Rainier beer. At smelter sites in towns such as Longview and Mead, aluminum production fostered landscapes of slow contamination, in which over the course of decades, hydrocarbons, cyanide, and fluoride seeped into soils, groundwater, and the bodies of working people. In Jamaica, aluminum fostered a landscape of, of environmental destruction and inequality, of which we still have far too little understanding. Tonight, I have told you a set of stories of salmon, of timber and coal, of railroads, hydroelectricity, and aluminum. And in the process, I have wandered far afield from Seattle. My goal here has been to emphasize that a city is not an isolated entity, but is itself a product of connections. And more importantly, that those connections all lead, eventually, back to nature, somehow, somewhere. A city and certain people within it gain their power through their ability to claim and mobilize parts of the natural world, whether salmon, rivers, copper, or bauxite. We overlook the environmental basis of that power to the extent that we believe that salmon comes from Whole Foods, electricity from the wall, and aluminum from the hardware store. We overlook the environmental basis of that power whenever we tell the history of cities as if only people mattered. As Seattle has grown, it, like other cities, has drawn into its orbit the resources of ever more distant places and peoples. The high technology industries responsible for our current pandemonium moment rely upon familiar pieces of nature, rivers, copper, gold, aluminum, but also on a host of less well-known things, things such as the so-called rare earth minerals, which have names like lathanum, scandium, yttrium, and lutetium and most of which are currently mined in remote regions of China. 
It is the availability of this unprecedented array of things and materials and the ability to summon more on a moment's notice that make possible the innovation and ideas on which Seattle prides itself. In the process, our deep reliance on our environment and on the environments of others can be obscured. Now, historians hate to be asked about the future. That's why we've established this other panel for you to come to, right? So let me try to preempt a few of your questions here. What does such a history tell us? Where does it lead? In contrast to the authors of the Where You At quiz, there is no suggestion here that we either can or should deglobalize or disconnect the city. The connections are important. Moreover, history cannot be undone. Yet if sustainability is the key challenge of our human future, we would do well to take note of its full complexity and to recognize that the sustainability of any place in the modern world is connected to the sustainability of many, many others. Knowledge of the deer rutting season will not help us very much here. There have been voices since at least the 1960s, here and elsewhere, trying to make and keep these types of connections visible. Historian Jeffrey Sanders calls them ecotopians. By this he means those who have recognized the connections between environmental sustainability and social justice and then work toward both. As the connections grow more complex, the task of making them visible grows harder and more urgent. Contemporary struggles for urban sustainability, environmental restoration, and landscape preservation are surely evidence that Seattleites recognize that our lives and those of our children are ineluctably tied to the future of the natural world. Yet the vision of a green city will remain a chimera unless we see it as part of a much larger struggle to empower working people and marginalized communities, both within the city and beyond. Okay, uh, I get to do the honors of return the favor that uh, Linda provided last week when she asked me questions. I get to ask her a couple of questions. So and, they should write down. Tonight. And you should write down your questions as well, because I don't want my questions to be the only questions that are raised. This is a wonderful presentation, uh, in, in many ways a challenging presentation, and I'll be honest, in many ways a sad presentation, because it really brings us face to face to the consequences of city growth. Uh, the first two lectures talked about, you know, if you will, kind of almost euphemistically and optimistically about, uh, about growth. And this lecture talks about the consequences, the negative consequences of that growth. And I, I know Linda will get into this in the question and answer session, and I know a lot of you have questions as well. Let me, as people leave, let me uh, start the discussion with a couple of questions that I have. And, and I guess I want to turn the focus from the, the way in which Seattle impacted the environment to the other side of the question. Seattle is very much, or at least we like to believe, or believe ourselves, is very much a green city, as a city where we're environmentally conscious, we're environmentally aware, and we want to protect that environment. Can you talk for a minute about how Seattle got to that point, how mm -hmm. we became environmentally sensitive or, or if, were we always environmentally sensitive? I, mm -hmm. I, I doubt if we were, but I'll, I'll give you a chance to answer that first. Okay, no, that's a good question, and, and I'm happy to have the opportunity to talk about that a little bit. Um, 
uh, Seattle, like, really went, followed a trajectory around environmentalism and environmental pro uh, protection that was fairly similar to urban areas across the rest of the country. That is, around the turn of the last century, around 1900, you start to see movements for the preservation of certain landscapes, like Mount Rainier in our own area. Mount Rainier is formed in 1899, I believe, 1898, 1899. Um, as, as well as within the city and urban parks movement. So an, an attempt to beautify the city and to create more natural landscapes to protect certain species within the city. Um, at the same time, there's a utilitarian conservation movement, which is an effort to preserve resources for future use, to manage them more efficiently. That's mostly led by the federal government, and it's focused on things like forest resources, and in our own region on fisheries resources. So there's a lot of effort to start managing fisheries, also in the late 19th and early 20th century. But um, the sort of real burst of environmentalism, a much more diverse interest in environmentalism, really comes after World War II, and that has a lot to do with the scope of the growth that Seattle goes through in World War II, the rapid increase in population, the development of new industries. And you see a much more many more diverse forms of environmentalism emerging after the war. So you get, on the one hand, a continuation of these preservation and conservation movements that have been there now for 50 years or so, but you also start to see people organizing to combat pollution in the city, famously the um, uh, pollution of Lake Washington, which is recognized in the 1950s. Lake mm -hmm. Washington is eutrophying, becoming very polluted. Uh, so there's a, uh, a strong local movement to organize against that and to create a, a, a legislative um, uh, capacity to deal with the pollution in Lake Washington. There's anti-freeway activists um, working in Seattle in the 1950s, early 1960s to prevent the destruction that takes place as a result of I-5. There's African Americans in the Central District who are organizing to improve conditions in the Central District to control rats. Um, there's also, interestingly, in Seattle and in the Northwest more generally, what I call a Native American environmentalism. It's not exactly environmentalism because Native Americans are actually organizing to reclaim their rights. It's more of a civil rights protest. But in this region, it's really centered on the fisheries and on fishing rights. And so it becomes very tied in with the state of the fisheries. And in some cases, Native Americans and sort of environmentalists, white environmentalists in the city become close allies and work together on several issues. And then there's also a counterculture environmentalism that emerges in the 1960s and 1970s, you know, sort of whole earth catalog kind of thing. So a much more diverse group of people involved in environmental activism after the war. But again, a, a long-term concern with preservation and conservation that I think goes back to 1900 or before. Mm. Okay. One, one other question. Um, obviously, your talk emphasized the fact that the benefits that came from growth uh, tended to, to go to certain people, uh, certain individuals, uh, often individuals who were far away, far removed from Seattle, like the Guggenheims or the Rockefellers and the like. Um, we, have, we hear a lot of discussion today about uh, economic inequality, about the, the fact that there's a concentration of capital in the, in the hands of, of a few people. Can you talk about, I guess for lack of a better term, environmental inequality? the way in which some people are able to benefit from the environment over, over others. Or some people are able to benefit, and this is a more controversial part, uh, some people are able to benefit from the, the environmental movement over others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, those, that's a very good question. Um, I think the sources of sort of environmental inequality, as you put it, do go back a long ways. And I think we could say there's maybe two 
basic components to it. The first is that when poor people arrive in Seattle, mm -hmm. they're often confined to marginal landscapes to begin with. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's just a result of, of their poverty and the fact that they can't afford to live in nicer areas. And for, but for people of color, it's often the result of overt segregation and discrimination. So you have communities of poor people in Seattle that are inhabiting the, the most marginal landscapes really from very early on. Native Americans get pushed to the edges they're living on a on, a, on, a, on what's called Ballast Island out in the Sound, which is where the ships come in and dump their ballast, and there's a big pile of rocks out in the Sound, so Native Americans are living there. Uh, along, in the early 20th century, you have a really diverse group of working people living along the waterfront in the tide flat areas, because these are the kind of the worst landscapes, and they, they haven't been all regraded. Uh, and so, so you have a steep hillside and a sort of a tideland area below, and sort of the main street is up here on the, on the higher uh, ground. And so that lowland becomes inhabited by working class people. Now, so that happens for a variety of reasons, but then once urban improvement becomes a major factor in city politics, people like J.D. Ross and others who are trying to improve the city, oftentimes those infrastructural improvements will actually increase the inequality. Hmm. Partly that's because services, when Ross brings electricity to Seattle, the first neighborhoods he lights up are downtown and then the wealthier neighborhoods. Uh, and so th those kinds of infrastructural investments often tend to favor middle class and upper class neighborhoods at the expense of working class neighborhoods. And oftentimes those working class neighborhoods are then slated for redevelopment. And so mm -hmm. working class people suffer for a couple of different reasons, but there are ways in which city investments in the past have exacerbated the environmental in inequalities that developed. I hope the mayor has heard that. <laughs> I said in the past. In the past. <laughs> Going forward, I don't expect that to be the case. Okay. Um, here's a question, and I'm going to try to read it. It's uh, a little bit difficult to read. Maybe if I pull my glasses off. Uh, please comment about what happened in, in the Duwamish River area, uh, displacement of Native Americans, and subsequent industrialization, pollution, and so now it's a Superfund site. In other words, what, what happened to the Duwamish River Valley? Well, I think one way I can handle that question is to just follow up with what I was discussing. I mean, one of the interesting examples, and unfortunate examples, I guess, of uh, environmental inequality is the um, relationship between cleaning up Lake Washington and the sort of further pollution of the Duwamish. So the Duwamish was already an industrial area, mm -hmm. right? Boeing was down there. Uh, lots of other smaller factories were down there. It was already quite a polluted site. Uh, it was a working class neighborhood as well. Working class people tend to live very close to where they work uh, for practical reasons. And so a working class neighborhood that was already industrialized, already polluted. But when the residents on the east side are, uh, are cleaning up Lake Washington, those are mostly middle class residents, they organize, metro is formed, they decide they need to stop the sewage affluent from entering Lake Washington. The plan they come up with, the initial plan, takes much of that sewage and diverts, some of it goes north out to the you know, Discovery Park, but a lot of it goes south and it gets dumped into the Duwamish River in the early 1960s. And so what that does is exacerbate the pollution that's already there. And so there's massive fish kills and, and, and Metro will then spend you know, a lot of money over many decades trying to address the problems and eventually build a sewage plant in the south side of the city. Mm. But that takes a long time to remedy that. So there's an example of the ways in which an already polluted landscape, 
is made worse by certain kinds of infrastructural improvements. And we're still living with both the industrial and the sewage legacies uh, of that. Here's, here's a question that somewhat follows up on it. Your story of the Douglas fir ends in the 19th century. Did they continue to be an important resource into the 20th century? Regionally, yes, they continued to be a vital resource. I mean, the, the, the Northwest timber uh, business really doesn't hit its stride until the 1920s, uh, and it continues up through, really up until the 1980s, as sort of a major industry throughout the area. It's not all centered in Seattle, because the trees are elsewhere, and oftentimes it's these large mills that are, you know, their relationship to Seattle might not be all that great. I mean, mm -hmm. Weyerhaeuser is obviously located in Federal Way, it's nearby, but there are other companies who may have their headquarters in other places. But certainly the lumber industry is very important, and Seattle benefits from that. Not so much from, the, uh, you know, harvesting the logs, not, that's mm -hmm. not being done here, mm -hmm. but all of the ancillary business services that those mm -hmm. companies need, those people are in Seattle. Mm -hmm. So Seattle okay. continues to benefit. Uh, next question: Would you support the would you support the hypothesis that oh current the current explosion of giant cities leads to an incredible destruction of the essentially all that is beautiful in the world? <laughs> um, I think I'll talk to that person afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I, Fifth Amendment: Refuse to answer. When, when will your book on the environmental history of Seattle, this lecture, be published? I don't know. You'll have to talk to <laughs> University of Washington Press. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But thank, uh, thank you for your interest. Okay. Um, do you think there is an, an optimum population size for the Puget Sound region? In other words, at what point do we have too many people in this region? I, you know, I really don't know that I, I, can, I can answer that question either. I don't know that population in general is that good of a measure of sustainability because as we've learned over the years, um, you know, population, uh, a very different pop size of populations can be sustained in a given area. I think, I wouldn't say less important, but equally important is how that population is sustained, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just to look at population in isolation mm -hmm. doesn't get us very far. We mm -hmm. need to ask how that population sustaining itself. So it really is both about the population and the consumption, what the resources that the population consumes, where they're coming from, how they're being harvested, and so. Well, that, that leads me to, to a question then. How are we doing? How is Seattle doing? How is the region doing in terms of the sustainability? Well, we have two mayors in the audience. I don't know why you're asking me. <laughs> okay, we'll get the mayor's take on this in a minute. Uh, how, does Se <laughs> how does Seattle force or encourage environmental protection in the hinterlands? Interesting. E.g., uh, for example, salmon protection, clean water in the Columbia Basin, logging regulations, clean air rules for aluminum smelters, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's an interesting question and a complicated one. Um, you know, S Seattle in and of itself doesn't necessarily have any direct control over hinterland regions. However, urbanites are tremendously powerful. And this has been a source of controversy really for over a century. The way in which urban people can sometimes dictate the terms on which 
people outside the city get to live their lives and use their landscapes. So urban people, through their ability to influence legislation, because they produce many of the political, business, and economic leaders in the state, have a tremendous influence on state legislation that influences rural landscapes. And that's often led to a series of bitter conflicts for when Seattle, you know, the thing about cities is that it's urban people that generally want to preserve pieces of the environment for uh, recreation and aesthetics. It's people in the countryside who tend to use those landscapes more actively, and they often have resented the um, actions urbanites have taken to regulate things like fishing or other kinds of activities, right? I mean, this is the argument that has been taking, at least the, how the argument's being voiced down in, in uh, Burns, right? Mm -hmm. and, and Malheur Refuge. Wow. And so that, that kind of, that set of conflicts between urban and rural people over how to manage the landscape really goes back to the late 1800s. It's mm. not new. Wow. Well, that, uh, let's make that the last question. We're almost out of time here. I want to thank Professor Nash for this wonderful lecture. I've, I've been educated. I don't know about you, but I, I've certainly been educated. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Linda Nash spoke at UW's Kane Hall this past January 27th. Thanks again to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Tune in again soon.